It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, producer, bassist, and composer Jamaladine Takuma. The Uptown Theater is where I, I was. You know, I lived not, not far from there, and, and I was there. You know, just, you know, going to those rock and roll shows, as they would call it, you know. Oh, man, there's one guy in particular who I'm still in contact with. His name is Val Burke, who was the bass player with a group called Willie and the Mighty Magnificence who were the background band, the backup band for the moments. And the thing that I keep referring back to was a, a bass solo that he took, and um, he was playing the solo, and all of a sudden he just took his hands off his bass and started blowing his fingers like they were on fire. I was like, <laughs> what? That was it for me. You know? I was like, he was like <laughs> I was like, okay. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and every other week we talk to writers, artists, and musicians about their life and work. You can find out more about past guests at the Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook, follow Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral 2, at Twitter, and stream and download the show through iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. On today's show, Grammy-nominated bassist Jamaladeen Takuma. When I first started buying music magazines as a teen in the early 80s, I always stopped to admire the advertisements for a series of records Jamaladeen released through the Gramavision label. There was something very pleasing about how Jamaladeen's angular features fit in naturally with the modern art design of his LP covers. To hear Jamaladeen play, I'm reminded of the phrase of praise, he owns it, with his bass playing achieving a nimble fluidity few players even attempt on his instrument. To see Jamaladeen play live is to consider the relationship between a musician and their instrument, the way a great musician can achieve a communication so complete that the instrument seems to literally come to life in their hands. Jamaladeen's electric bass playing rises to that realm, and it's interesting to hear him talk in our interview about being so moved as a young man by a bit of theatricality Val Burke worked on the bass while performing at the Uptown. Not to discount the hard work that makes it possible, but for the music lover, Takuma's career seems like a dream. After a couple years woodshedding on the electric bass as a North Philly teen, his talent is spotted and he's whisked away to the major leagues of jazz. First with organist Charles Erland, who had a sizable hit with the tune Black Talk in 1969, and then famously with jazz legend Ornette Coleman and his groundbreaking band Primetime. In 1975, at the age of 18, Jamaladeen packed his bags and relocated for six months to Paris with Ornette's band, playing and recording the classic LP Dancing in Your Head. From there, Jamaladeen's world expanded, playing international stages, releasing his own records, and playing with Jeff Beck, Carlos Santana, The Roots, Nona Hendrix, Kip Hanrahan, The Golden Palominos, and James Blood Almer on numerous and far-reaching sessions. Jamaladeen's playing exhibits a good-natured excitement that flows from the man himself as we meet for the first time on mic. He talks about the Philadelphia he grew up in, his insights into Ornette, his appearance on Saturday Night Live, his interest in fashion and design, his exclusive clothing boutique, and his new interest, the acoustic bass. As for upcoming chances to see the bassist live, Jamaladeen is curating an incredible show in Philly on Friday, April 24th, under the title The Outsiders Improvised and Creative Music Festival at CEC Community Education Center. Slated to perform are the Sun Ra Orchestra mainstays Marshall Allen and Danny Ray Thompson, Chuck Treese, Orrin Evans, the Ben Schachter Trio, the Dan Blackberg Trio, and electronic whiz Charles Cohen. You can find out more on Jamaladeen's Facebook page or at jamaladeenmusic.com. That's Jamaladeen, J-A-M-A-A, 
L-A-D-E-E-N. Today's conversation originated at WPRB Princeton, where I've hosted a weekly jazz and improvised music program Monday mornings from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. for the last decade plus. Let's head into the interview. are just delighted to have uh, the bassist extraordinaire Jamaluddin Takuma in the studio. We're going to start off with one of his tunes and then bring him to the mic. This is from a trio he's had over the last few years featuring the great Vernon Reed, the guitarist from Living Color, and uh, made, made some wonderful records with Ronald Chan and Jackson back in the day as well. G. Calvin Weston is on the drums. The release is called Bon Vivant. They're called the Freeform Funky Freaks featuring Jamaluddin Takuma on the bass here on Start of the Peacock.
that is music from the Freeform Funky Freaks from the album Bon Vivant featuring Vernon Reed on guitar, G. Calvin Weston on the drums, and my guest on uh, on the bass there, Jamaladeen Takuma, playing the electric bass there. And uh, Jamaladeen Takuma may not be the greatest practitioner of the electric bass, but uh, I tell you, when you see him, that is the first thing that comes to your mind. He is a bass player of the, the first uh, caliber who has uh, influenced basses uh, in the years since he burst onto the scene back in the 70s. Uh, I was just uh, watching the DVD of the fourth season of Saturday Night Live, an episode with Milton Berle. I think of pairings. Milton Berle and Ornette Coleman were the pairing for that night. And uh, I remember being a 14-year-old kid and just, uh, you know, just having my teen mind blown, seeing Ornette Coleman wailing away on that sax in that purple suit. And as the camera pulls back on the set there, his, on, on his right hand is Jamaluddin Takuma looking r- resplendent in uh, an incredible suit and uh, just playing uh, as much bass as you could possibly imagine. Uh, Jamaluddin, uh, he was uh, sort of a discovery of Ornette Coleman's. Uh, uh, Jamaluddin came out of Philadelphia playing with Charles Erland, a great organist, and uh, quickly became a major part of the primetime band, the electric band Ornette Coleman put together in the 70s, uh, as, as mind-blowing as Miles going electric, was Ornette going electric with the primetime band in that year's. Uh, the, the faith he had in Jamaluddin as a musician was not misplaced. Jamaluddin went on to a long career recording for Gramavision and still recording amazing records to this day in recent years. He's uh, recorded with Derek Bailey. He's recorded with The Roots. He uh, continues to put out wonderful records, a great series of tributes to jazz greats. uh, John Coltrane, uh, Thelonious Monk, and Ornette Coleman have have been uh, paid tribute to wonderful with wonderful conceptual records from Jamaluddin in recent years. And uh, I just couldn't be more excited to have him uh, have him on the show here. It's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of effusive praise from me today because I'm so glad to have Jamaluddin here in the studio. Good afternoon, Jamaluddin. Good afternoon to you, and it's a pleasure being here, really. Um, I'm so happy. And the vibration that I felt when I first came in the building, you know, well, it was a trip getting here. <laughs> but once I got here, you know, it was uh, quite inviting. And I thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun to uh, to watch uh, Jamaluddin look through the, the stack of records I've collected <laughs> from him over the years. And uh, he's uh, made... Just so much incredible music, and he's such a, uh, a blessing to have here in the Philadelphia area, although it seems he's uh, around the world as much as anything. <laughs> you, were, you were in Japan uh, I recently? was just in Japan this past summer. We were doing um, the uh, jazz festivals there, and it's a big rock concert festival that they had there. Fuji Rock, it was, it was called. And I was there with uh, Mark Rebo, the guitarist, oh, yeah. and uh, with a group that we have called the Young Philadelphians. <laughs> Who's in that band? Uh, it's G. Calvin Weston on drums, um, Mary Halverson on guitar, uh, Mark Rebo on on, uh, on guitar, and uh, we we picked up some string players from from Japan at that time. So whenever we play at a particular area, we usually pick up the string quartet from that area, and we incorporate um, those strings along with our improvisation, playing those classic Philly tunes, and also other tunes from that era. What, what Philly you know? tunes do you play? Uh, we play Teddy Pendergrass, um, Love TKO. Oh, really? We play. Um, um, do it any way you want it by the people's choice. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we do some other stuff too. The Ohio players, 
um, just just a few weeks ago, I picked up "Live in '79" from Teddy Pendergrass. Okay, and, yeah. Wow, you forgot what a performer he was. He was really cool. Yeah, his yeah. voice was undeniable, and he and he, you know, he grew up in North Philly, where I where I grew up as well. So yeah, you said you had G. Calvin Weston with you mm-hmm. in, in Japan. How, how long do you go back with him? We go back. Wow, from I would think 1974, 75. I just unearthed a, a cassette tape that I had of Calvin and I playing at a club uh, at a club in in Philadelphia when he was about sixteen years old called the Allegheny West, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know we were playing there with a local band and we had to be like sixteen or seventeen years old and you know he he was he was kind of floored to, to hear that you know that cassette. Yeah, I just saw you and Calvin at the Rotunda with Elliot. I can't rid of I can't get rid of that guy. <laughs> But yeah, when, when when people have been playing together as long as you've played yeah. together, it's there, uh, there's a, so fierce telepathy. There's a definitely, to be, there's, to be a definitely found. Mm-hmm, there's definitely a musical connection there, and I'm you know I'm I'm always happy to play with him. But I I I want us to be able to play in different ways um, and always constantly broadening our scope, you know, because mm-hmm. I think folks they have a certain kind of idea about us when we play together. But I I know that musically it always just keeps taking more. You know heights. Well, you have not stood still as a musician at all through all these years. Uh, no. There's, uh, I, I just saw a review online where somebody's saying you never know what's going to happen when you press play on a Jamaluddin Takuma record. I mean, you know, I, like you said, the blessing is something that I feel. I, I just, you know, from day one playing with Charles Erlin, and I was introduced to Charles Erlin from Odin Pope and Sherman Ferguson and Tyrone Brown, which uh, had the band Catalyst. Catalyst yeah. You know, I used to hang around those guys because they had. They were part of a um, an instructional team for an organization called the Model Cities Organization, which was a part of the Philadelphia organization that had instructionals and class classes for our students. Kind of an after school program where we would you know go to school and then afterwards we would go there for music instruction. So Tyrone was teaching bass there. Jimmy Merritt was also teaching bass there. Oh, the great oh, Art Blakey, mm, Art Blakey jazz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Lee Morgan, um, Jimmy Merritt played with as well. And so they had, you know, they had the situation where us children would go there and play and learn. And, you know, Tyrone and Sherman and Eddie Green and Odin, they they saw something in me, I guess, you know. When when did you get your first bass? That first bass, the first bass guitar was gotten, uh, I guess I was 16. Um, I I saw a a bass guitar. Well, it's actually a story. Well, the first bass was gotten when I was 16 years old. My my mother and my sister bought it for me after seeing it in a pawn shop on uh, Broad and Airy, right? And actually, that pawn shop is still there today. And I walked by it. But that particular day, I was walking by and saw this white hollow body Japanese bass from the 70s called the Kimberly bass which was later called the feedback machine because when I would play it on stage, I didn't know anything about putting tape over the F holes, which, you know, brought about a certain kind of frequency, which, you know, let it feedback a lot. So anyway, I, I saw that bass and I was walking with, down the street with my mother and my sister and I said, oh, I would love to have that, not even really having an instrument, not even really playing the bass guitar. And maybe two weeks or three weeks later, I came home, and it was sitting on top of my bed. So wow. I was happy. But there's an interesting story even before that quickly. When I was – my mother used to send me to North Carolina every summer, you know, to avoid the gang warfare and stuff like that. So my aunts was there. They took care of me. You know, I learned how to work with them on their farms and, you know, that whole thing, getting up early in the morning, coming in late at night. You know, that was a really cool thing, just certain, you know, sense of discipline and structure in my life. In that my aunt's house, they had a, a four-string guitar there 
that only it was it was a six string guitar, but it was missing two strings, and it was out of tune. I didn't even know how to tune it, but I used to just put my fingers on it every day. And and so you know when I came back home, you know that after that summer, I saw that bass, told my mother about it. And that's how it all started. No, you must you must have seen a lot of music in Philadelphia growing up. Definitely, Philadelphia was the, the, the up, center of what used to be the music business. Yeah, at one the point. Uptown Theater is where I I was. You know, I lived not not far from there and on uh, Broad Street. On Broad Street, with the Uptown Theater was on Broad and Susquehanna, and um, I lived not too far around the corner from there. Temple University is based there as well, and I was there. You know, just you know, going to those rock and roll shows as they would call it. You know. And um, who was on the bills? Uh, it was all it was all kinds of folks like the Temptations, James Brown, um, the Manhattans, the Five Stair Steps, uh, the Unifics, the Mad Lads. All these were R and B groups who at that particular time had hit records at that time, and they were traveling from Philadelphia to the, New York at the Apollo, and from the Apollo to the Regal in Chicago, and to the Howard in Washington, and they call it the Chitlin Circuit, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's where I saw most of uh, all the music that I saw there. My up, my upbringing in terms of in, being introduced to music was from there. You know? Do you remember the bass players you saw? Oh, man, there's one guy in particular who I'm still in contact with today who I contacted. His name is Val Burke, who was the bass player with a group called Wooly and the Mighty Magnificence, who were the background band, the backup band for the moments, which was produced by Sylvia Robinson, who started, you know, um, Sugar Hill Records. Love on a Two-Way Street. was Love on a Two-Way Street. That was the moments. Mm-hmm. And so that was Val Berg playing bass on that. And all of those moments hits he played bass on. And all the, the Whatnots. Uh, the Whatnots was another group. And um, Linda Jones. She was a vocalist from there. And a lot of that stuff that was coming out of Jersey was, was done with, you know, with uh, Val. So he was the first bass player I saw at the Uptown that really just blew my mind. And the thing that I keep referring back to was a, a bass solo that he took and um, he was playing the solo and all of a sudden he just took his hands off his bass and started blowing his fingers like they were on fire. I was like, <laughs> what? That was it for me. You know? I was like, he was like <sighs> I was like, okay. So that was quite interesting. And that's the thing that turned me on. And there was a group in Philadelphia called Brenda and the Tabulations. Oh, yeah. And they had a one song out called Dry Your Eyes. It was like what their, was their hit record. And they lived right around the corner from me. So her brothers and I, we had a group called the Versatones. And this was before I was playing the bass. And I thought I was going to be a singer, you know, you know, doing the steps and doo-wopping and that kind of thing. And this was all started before I started playing the bass. Did the Versatones record at all? No, we didn't record. Yeah. There's no video footage. And I don't know if there's any, any photos. There might be some photos somewhere. I'm going to have to ask around. But I'd like to definitely see that uh, I remember us having one uniform that was these red pants, a black shirt, white cummerbund, and white bow tie and white gloves, <laughs> and that was pretty cool at the time. The, the, the fashion of Jamal Dean that, that started a whole that, other discussion. That, yeah, I, think. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. That started early too, from you know looking at all those groups at the uptown. Maybe the best dressed man in jazz as well. I don't know. There's some guys out there that <laughs> they're, they're trying, and I'm trying to help them out actually too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to help them. <laughs> so once you started playing the bass, uh, where did you take that bass playing? Well, that was a funny story, too, because uh, there was a, uh, there's a whole string of guys who were sort of mentors to me. One guy in particular, his name was Michael Broadnecks, who passed away a couple years ago. He was a good friend of mine. He was a guitar player. And he had a band originally called The Soul Experience, because in Philadelphia there were these groups that kind of 
started out in neighborhoods, each neighborhood in Philadelphia. We had a we had a group which was our big brothers, which are I'm still in contact with them today. They were called the Soul Divines, and they eventually changed their name to the Force of Nature, which was they were signed to um, Philadelphia International Records, and so um, they were like our big brothers. And then from that. We had groups under us, like the Soul Phonics. We were the Soul Experience. You had Robin Eubanks and Kevin Eubanks. They had um, Sundown. Then you had Breakwater. You know, they were break, Breakwater. Then you had Raw Soul. The, you had the Natural Soul Brothers LTD. And all these groups were like neighborhood bands who actually started out gang war bangers. They were oh, gang war bangers, and then they just decided to play. So, you know, it was interesting because some of those guys were still like gangsters in the bands. You know, like... They were basically like, you know, the red light parties, that the blue light parties that they would have on the weekends. You know, they would do the concerts. And after that, they would just start fighting each other. It was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. But um, it, was a, it was a beautiful time that they transitioned from that neighborhood gang warfare kind of thing to the bands. Yeah. And that was a beautiful thing, you know. And it, it kind of sprouted to all the musicians who were popular at that time and who learned from other musicians and, you know, just carried on. So. That's wow. how I started playing the bass. And what happened was Michael, I, I met Michael, and he he asked me um, what I I told him that I played the bass, and he said, "Well, would you play in my band? We have a show next week." And at that time, it was really popular. Like if you had a lot of equipment, they would you know because nobody had equipment then. You know, nobody had any cars, nobody had equipment. So it's like if you got an amplifier, you got your bass, you got a PA system. Wow, we want you in our band. You know, because wow, we can make our you know we can make our band sound better. So I told him, you know, it was a little, it was a little lie, you know, maybe one of the few lies that I remember in my life because I'm not really a liar. I don't <laughs> like to lie. But this is one, one lie that I remember that I told him. It was a small one. I told him that I had, like, all this equipment. So he said, great, get in our, you know, come in our band. So, you know, for two days we rehearsed, you know, and I, this is the first week that I ever picked up the bass. I just, you know, played it. Come Friday, the time for the gig, he says, uh, all right, now we're going to pick up you know, the equipment so we can go to our show. I said, I said, somebody stole my stuff. <laughs> so we found another amplifier that night for me to play through. I would say that and maybe that isn't it. a lie. Maybe that's just a dream you needed to see happen. <laughs> it, 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 it worked. It worked. And it, we, laughed, we laughed about it you know, to the very end. So it was interesting. Wow. And that's how it all started. And so, so, so for one year, I just you know, stood in my room and just practiced. You know, all the guys that were out dating and all that kind of stuff. I really didn't do that. I just basically stayed in, in my room and played and went to school. And came home and played. Went to school, came home and played. I remember clearly putting the record on the needle, just playing along with some Chaka Khan record, or, or even checking out some you know European stuff that was going on at the time in Terry's Ripto or oh, yeah. some Chick Corea stuff, or you know the early records that was happening during that time. I, I played along with everything, so that's what got me going. Uh, how did you end up in, in Charles Ireland's band? And uh... um, they, you know, like I said, Odine and Sherman, they, 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 you know, they told Charles Ireland about me and asked me what I, you know, play with them. And um, I played with him for a year, myself and a drummer from this area now named Abe Speller, who played with, um, oh, sure. play with um, Sonny Chirac. Is he Keno Speller's? Uh, no, not, uh, I'm not, no, 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 I don't think they're related. No, oh, okay. no, but um yeah, so we played with Charles Erland for about a year, and then one evening in in Newark, New Jersey, at the Key Club, hmm. um, he called me back back you know in the room to get paid. He says, "Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to." 
be able to use you anymore. <laughs> I oh, was really? like, what? Because I had got a scholarship, partial scholarship to go to Berkeley. And I decided that I wanted to just be a, a, you know, a musician, a touring musician. That's something that I always wanted to do. So when it happened with Charles Earl, and I, was, you know, I didn't take advantage of that, schol- of that scholarship, and I you know, pursued the, uh, the, the life of a road musician. So I um, was with Charles for that whole year period, and for some reason, you know, um, he said, oh, I don't want to use you anymore. And, I, and I, I was just curious, and I was, even though it was kind of shocking to me, I, I, I wanted to know why, because I didn't want, I mean, I knew that that was going to be the end, but I just, you know, I had to know the reason why, because uh, I couldn't think of anything. And uh, he says, well, you know, your timing is off. Now, I, I can kind of understand it in, in a way, because he, mind you, he's an organ player who at that time, the organ was the instrument that was always, uh, the bass was always played with the, with the left hand. Uh-huh. So here you have an individual who's playing the organ, per, per, you know, performing the bass line himself with the left hand. So he has a really, a really uh, a unified sense of, um, of his projection from the performance yeah, that he's often, doing. Often where the organ groups would, would drop a bass player altogether because the, the, the organ player would right. handle and it. Right, and it was kind of new to have an electric bass player play. Now, this is what, this is, from my recollection, this is what, what happened. This is what went down. I, for some reason, you know, when it came time to solo, I would just get down. And I would just, like, you know, go, go for it. That was my my mission. My mission was like, look, here, if you give me a solo, I'm going to go for it. And, you know, the house would clap, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he would look at me a certain kind of way. And one <laughs> one thing, it was, so there was that. And then it was one other piece that really made me think, well, maybe this was also the reason why I was fired. We were supposed to have done a concert on the same bill with Roy Ayers. Mm. And I remember <laughs> coming on stage with these white earth shoes and earth shoes was these kind of like kind of hippie shoes that we you know, like kind of like rubber sole crepe sole kind of thing sure, yeah. that we wore but everyone was wearing brown and black ones and you know brown and black and i had these white ones and then i had a gold guitar strap and i and i was like oh he was like so he said like what are you doing with it you know white guitar so i i think that kind of Along with you know you know soloing and you know stepping out out of the realm of a bass player who's in the background you know and he must have been a bit older than you at the he time was older too, than right? me yeah he was older yeah, than so me so I can see this young guy who's uh, still yeah, on the scene know, a little bit yeah might you be know time but to cut him loose one yeah <laughs> might be time to cut him loose <laughs> but see I don't feel that way with it I want I encourage those guys to 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 dress up I sure. encourage those guys to bring their a game I encourage the guys that I, I work with to to you know but it's a you know there's a, a kind of an old Old flavor, old school kind of concept with that, you know, uh, and probably this is how he was thinking. But but that was okay because the week that I came home, uh, approximately, and I was feeling kind of bad. And that might be also one of the few times in my life that I remember having that like that real like down feeling. You're like, wow, dang, what happened here, right? Sure. And and you know because mind you, I didn't go to Berkeley, and I was saying to myself, you know, what's going to happen now? So approximately one week later, I got a call from from Reggie Lucas, who at the time he was a guitar Reggie's a guitarist, who's at the time uh he was with Miles Davis. Reggie Lucas and James and Toomey, percussionists. They were both from Philadelphians. Son of the son of the Heath brothers. Uh, the Heath brothers, right. right. Yeah. And they were both Philadelphians and they both were musicians 
who were playing with Miles Davis at the time. Uh, he, and then actually Reggie went on to become extraordinary producer, producing Madonna's first record. Mm-hmm. And James and Tumay and, and Reggie together, they worked on a lot of the... F- Stephanie Mills' early records as producer, a lot of the early um, uh, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway, you know, tracks they worked on. He had his own group, M. Tomei at yeah, uh, exactly. Columbia or Epic, yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. <laughs> with the sh- Juicy Fruit, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> so, you know, they were already, like, thinking a certain way. So they see this young guy coming up and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So they um, had got a call from Ornette to come to rehearse with them, but they couldn't because they was with Miles. So they referred me to Ornette. Wow. And so I went... I went to New York for the rehearsal for audition or whatever, and I played a half of a song with Ornette. And he looked at me and says, okay, I would like to take you with me to Europe, you know. And we were supposed to go to Europe for two weeks, and we wound up staying for six months. And there we recorded Theme from a Symphony and, you know, Dancing in Your Head. And that's how it started with Ornette. Wow. I, I do have some Ornette queued up here with mm-hmm. uh, Jamal Adin. Uh, playing with him, but I, I do have to stop a second. And uh, you know, Ornette's uh, been a, a, a long time concern of this radio show. Mm. I mean, I imagine over the last fifteen years, I've probably played something from almost every record he's ever made. Um, very few artists get to be uh, at, at at a groundbreaking center of the world in the way that Ornette was. And for the first, uh, I don't know how many it would be, maybe ten or fifteen years, he he played pretty much with a, the same small cadre yeah. of players and he played mm-hmm. uh, pretty much all acoustically with charlie hayden and uh, right. dewey redmond and, 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 and uh, david eisenhorn mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, ed blackwell moffitt <laughs> <laughs> uh, billy higgins sometimes. right <laughs> but uh this uh, same as uh, almost dylan going electric at, at uh at the folk festival the same of uh, miles shocking people with with bitches brew it was uh, a real shock when ornette coleman really came up with a whole new conception that uh that did shock people, and mm-hmm. that was the electric sure primetime yeah. prime band. Um, Ornette, a, a, a creature of legend almost at this point, mm-hmm. uh, with, with uh, the career that he's had. What, what, was your, what were your first impressions of, of Ornette? Well, it was funny him? because, I, you know, um, I, rem- I had remembered right before that week, I had never really known anything about him before because my roots started in R&B and soul and that kind of thing, as I mentioned. And so, but I was, you know, I was checking out, some of the more uh, adventurous things that was coming out of Europe, but I really didn't know about him. For some reason, that got by me. I didn't really, I didn't really make that connection. And so his career was a little quieter, I think, in the early seventies. Okay, uh, so okay. I could see where maybe he wouldn't be, uh, you know, in your purview as a young man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do remember that week before that, I remember seeing, reading an article of, about him in Downbeat. So when Reggie, and, you know, had you know made the introduction, I was like, oh, that's that gentleman that I read about. And then I started doing my research and found I was like, wow, okay, now I understand clearly what's going on with him in music. So, Wow. Well, <laughs> maybe we should get to uh, one uh, a cut here from uh, Ornette Coleman's Body Meta record featuring Jamal Adin Takuma on the, uh, on the bass here. I'm trying to remember who else is on this. Uh, is it uh, Charlie, El- Charlie Ellerby? <laughs> Charlie Ellerby, another Philadelphia, mm-hmm, Philadelphia musician, mm-hmm. an incredible musician. So many of these people were, I guess, just about the whole band has uh, been band leaders after this experience. Burn Nix. Uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson on drums with Denardo Coleman mm-hmm. and Jamal Dean Takuma on the bass. This is called Voice Poetry. Uh, Ernie Coleman with Jamal Dean Takuma as we, uh, we're here with Jamal Dean Takuma this afternoon.
And that's voice poetry from the album Body Meta from Ornette Coleman, uh, featuring the bass playing of J- J- Jamaluddin Takuma, who I am uh, pleased to have in the studio here with us this afternoon. Uh, I don't know how often do you ever listen to your old records again? Have you heard that in a while? Yeah, ah, you know that's what I'm saying. You know, I, I have so much material, but it's always a pleasure to hear that. You know, hear those things. I mean, as I was saying, I was as I, I was on my way here today. I was listening to the Renaissance Man album, and I I played the um, the Battle of Images, the string quartet piece that I I did. And I said, you know, I, I should do more of that. You know, more compositional things with strings. And whenever I hear any of these older pieces, it just blows my mind that. It was just so accepted as it was, you know. I mean, it's it definitely it definitely sounds different to me as well. I mean, I I I haven't heard anybody play the bass <laughs> the way that I do. It's like crazy. When I hear myself, when I hear myself play, I say, "That's a strange sounding." Guy. <laughs> but it's cool. It's like you you hear it, you get it. But it's like you got to really delve into it to find out, you know, exactly what's going on. And I liked it just as, a, as opposed to, you know, you hear a bass player play or a guitar player play, you go, oh, I know what he's doing. You know, I like, I like the idea of being able to like really try to have a question mark. Like, what is he doing? You know, wh- what is this about? Why does it sound like that? Why is he moving, you know, around like that? What, you know, why is he uh, making his musical ideas sound as they are like that? You know, and that's interesting to me. It's a, it's it's not an intuitive analogy, but I find when I listen to to, to Chuck Berry's records, mm. and I've heard those records so many times, but he goes off in those solos. I can never guess where those solos are going to go. No, no, even no, no, no. I've heard them so many you, you, times. You know, you heard them so many times, right? And, but listening back to you, I always have that that like you you're always going some place I'm not expecting. And even though you heard it before. I think the beauty of it is that the freshness of the musical idea, because you know, Ornette never called his music free jazz. He never called it that. And that's a term that they placed on it for whatever reason. And but he, he's always thought of as though his music was based in compositional improvise, improvising, and that entailed um, the musical idea being the most important factor in the improvisational aspect of it all. And he did give it a name. He talked about harmonics. Harmonics, yeah, harmonics yeah. was his con, his con, conceptual idea, where unlike in Western forms of music, where you have the harmony, the rhythm, and the arrangement, and the melody all sort of placed in a particular area comfortably. And harmonics, all of those things are happening at the same time simultaneously. They're all moving in the same direction. And the thing that is most important about playing in a compositional way like that is in every song you have a bridge. So we, as instrumentalists, we made our own bridges. You know, we sort of made our own bridges to complement what the melody was. It was always important that we all knew the melody. You know, it wasn't just that we just got up and just, you know, started going for broke. No, each one of those songs were meticulously crafted with melody and composition. And we all have to, knew, we all have to know those melodies to be able to, to play, you know, our improvising. Yeah, when you step back, you can really feel what the structure of those, yeah. those pieces if you played are. Anything, if you played, if you improvised and you, and, and you played anything, uh, anything less than the melody, then it wasn't happening. Everything that you had to play was either equal to that melody or much more interesting. And the musical idea, I think, is more important than a, a regurgitated riff. Yeah, yeah. As a quote I've, I've heard attributed to Ornette, I don't know, we could be, uh, you know, uh, legend at this point, but it was, uh, don't play the chords, play the music. Yeah, right, exactly. That yeah. sounds like something he would say, you know? Yeah, yeah. Actually, in the, in the beginning of our record of the, uh, of the For the Love of Ornette album, you know, we're all in the studio. 
And um, it just, it was a beautiful thing for me just to be able to to do that record in, in his honor because, you know, my first album, Showstopper, he wrote a song for me called Takuma Song. And that was a special gift to me. Um, and 35 years or more later, I wanted to do something for him. And that's why I came up with the concept and the idea for the love of Ornette. And um, it was interesting that we were all in the studio getting ready to record. And I didn't want him to have to think about anything because he, he's always thinking of himself as being inside of the music. He never thought of himself as being one who was out in the front, that he was the band leader, even though he was structurally and administratively the band leader, but he never thought of himself musically as being a band leader. He's always thought of himself as being inside of the sound. And so, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, the saxophone player or the guitar player or any lead instrument, as you might call it, uh, which we all were lead instruments. But, you know, this uh, the idea of the guy being up in the front of the stage playing and the band is warming up and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're taking off. He didn't. He never thought of it like that. We've From note one, we took off from note one. And so um, it was very interesting that in that studio setting, for my record, I was taken back to prime time because before we started the first note, he says... You know, fellas, 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 <laughs> you know, you know, and he started to make a, a certain phrase that was um, that's on the record and um, forget the notes and get to the idea, you know, and that to me, I, I was like, I wasn't expecting that, but I kept that on the record because that's something that he would always do. And it made and it made musical sense, you know, and it set it up for everybody, you know, fellas, you know, forget the notes and just get to the idea. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What was your time in Paris? uh with him, that like. was interesting. I, I I was like what eighteen years old. I called my mother, say, "Mom, I'm not coming home." <laughs> she was like, "What?" And we were supposed to go for two weeks, and we just wound up staying there for six months. And there we was living. We were living at uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson, Charlie, uh, Burn Nix, and myself. We were there uh, at a hotel called Hotel Le Prince on Rue Mansour Le Prince in Paris. And there, you know, we we were there for that amount of time. And that was our base. We would rehearse there. We would go over music. We would rehearse, go over music, rehearse, and live. And then we would, you know, when he found a, a booking agent over there, we would go out and do some, you know, dates and then come back to our home base in Paris. So that lasted for six months. And, and, and the band was really tight at that point, and that was the opportunity for us to record, you know, the album, you know, Theme from the Symphony, you know, Dancing in Your Head. So Yeah, yeah, groundbreaking records, mm. incredible records. And uh, I guess I mentioned this uh, this earlier. You being on uh, Saturday Night Live with that band. Do, <laughs> yeah. do, do you remember much from? Yes, uh, I do. I remember that day. I remember that day. I remember the rehearsal leading up, the rehearsals, which were grueling leading up to it. And I remember we were just talking about a project that I'm working on. You know, because from a music, from an artist standpoint, I'm I'm, I'm working as a, as a curator for various uh, situations, and we're going through um, all of the work samples and all the materials that are needed for this grant application, right? So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going back, and you know, you know, it's like, okay, I'm a musician, I'm a producer, I'm a musician, but also I have this visual aspect to my concerts. There's, they have to, there has to always be something visual. And this was even before I, I, I had thought of myself as being a visual artist, you know. I always felt as though that the, the, the mixed media situation was something that I always wanted to do. So I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm saying, you know what? Even that Ornette Coleman concert, that we did on Saturday Night Live, I curated the styling, the wardrobe, because I knew, well, Ornette has always set the standard in terms of the way that he looked. 
And I said to myself, I said, you know what? I want the band to look absolutely fantastic. So I had a tailor come in from Philadelphia. He bought swatches of materials. Everybody in the band chose their fabrics. I figured they were Italian suits and not Italian <laughs> they suits. They were custom made for us. <laughs> <laughs> and I curated that. You know, uh, well, not the, only, well, I mean, the, the color scheme was great because you had these very muted colors yeah, for the right, band. Right. And Ornette is in this right. fantastic. Ellie uh, uh, um, was playing. He was wearing sort of a kind of a blue, kind of still bluish kind of thing. Uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson was wearing kind of a burgundy thing. And Donato was wearing, I can't really remember what Donato was wearing. And Byrne was wearing something. And then it was, it was just very interesting. And also, at that particular um, uh, concert on Saturday Night Live, Ornette brought in um, artistic pieces from his, his loft, like paintings and some sculptures. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's, it's a real yeah. different set for yeah, them. Yeah, that was uh, pieces from it's, his It's thing. like you're in a living room. There's a carpet underneath him, right, uh, a right, rug. Yeah. Right, right. So those were things that I was introduced to early on that I didn't even know that I was taking in, you know. So it was a, it was a few years later where you were uh, a, a band leader signed to, to Gramavision, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yep. And uh, those records themselves are, are, are very stylized. Yes, They're really yes. beautiful you packages. Know, we would and, go, uh, I, was, I was doing that. I was, you know, they would say, okay, well, Jamal, we're going to do this, the cover for your record. I said, and I had already thought about the way I wanted to go, wanted to, to be. And, you know, I would go there and the stylist would be there with a whole rack of clothes. i say, no, 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 I have my own clothing. You know, I have my own stuff. You know, so I was even working as a stylist then, you know, which has helped me now because a lot of times I'm really concentrating. I have this um, little shop, you know, boutique kind of thing called the Red Carpet Room. And this Red Carpet Room is a, a, a place where men can come, guys can come and choose pieces for their wardrobe. You know, when I'm traveling in Europe and I'm traveling around, I'm constantly picking up items, interesting items that I think that are really interesting for the guys be it a guy who wants to wear something really interesting or cool on stage or off. So they can come and find a cool scarf, a cool shirt, jackets, you know, things that will enhance them. Because every boutique that you go to, consignment, boutique, whatever, is always for women. So this is strictly for guys. Where is this boutique? It's in, in southwest Philadelphia. Give it, give it an address. If you, if you. <laughs> it's by appointment only. But oh, you okay. can go, you know, I have an eBay store as well. But you can go to www.jamaladeemusic.com or you can go to the Red Carpet Room Instagram and you can check it out there. Red, uh, R-E-D-D, Carpet Room. All yeah. you have to do is is, <laughs> is go to Google uh, Google search and put in Jamaladeen Takuma and push the image search button and look at the, the clothing that Jamal has been photographed in over the years. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, I think that the audio must go with the visual, you know, and that's something that I completely believe in all the way. I mean, I, you know, when you go to a concert, you go to an opera, you know, you want to hear that beautiful music, but you also want to see that scene in that direction done in a way that you're floored, you know? You uh, want to be floored. Yeah. yeah, your most recent record, uh, uh, I believe <laughs> it's the most recent CD, The it Legend is. Of the pipe, pipe and the and sweater, sweater. Right. And, and that, and there's a, a beautiful uh, sweater and pipe on the cover, right. and, and uh, <laughs> it was yeah. the liner notes inside, I think, or I think I read it online, maybe, right. where you were talking about sort of the classic Danish yeah, look yeah. of the time, you know, the the sweater and the pipe, yeah, and, and since yeah, you were yeah. going and recording with these Danish musicians, right. you know, I, I was there in, in 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 Denmark, and I was recording with these Danish musicians. And it clicked on me. And, I, and I, even when I was there, I felt a certain coolness, a certain kind of serenity that was happening with them musically. And it projects through their music. And so as I was thinking about the, the, the visual for the record, I said, well, you know what? That sweater, that classic, you know, North, you know, European uh, kind of Icelandic, you know, sweater with the pipe. 
th- th- those two images go together because I remember in the fifties I would see those those images of, you know, the the the, the fisherman, the you know, the blah blah blah, and even in terms of jazz and music. These were the the iconic images that I saw with the early European musicians that were doing that was always that and it, and that look actually transferred itself to the states because then you had Dizzy Gillespie smoking a pipe the guys were yeah. wearing goatees yeah. you know Frank Sinatra and Dizzy Gillespie and all that they were wearing the string neckties you know bow ties you know that wasn't really tied it was just like kind of hanging you know for me I'm thinking the kind of things you'd see Max von Sydow wear in a, in a exactly, Bergman film yeah. exactly yeah. that whole vibe um, but know? then when I, when I look read further you've mentioned that your in, uh, interest in interior design it, it, it all goes together yeah when I was you know I mean I know about all of the mid-century designers I know about Arnie Jacobson Arnie Jacobson was you know he you know the same thing you would see those guys like Charles Eames they were all like in the 50s 60s just like you know holding a pipe contemplating you know something you know thinking about their next furniture design their next chair design or they might even had images of them sitting in their chairs for advertisements you know with pipe in hand or whatever and you know at home relaxing feet up you know fireplace roaring you know you know uh, so, so your interest uh, like a, like a lot of a lot of great artists the interest uh uh, through all the senses, the ears, the eyes. Yes. You're, you're probably a great cook as well, I imagine. Um, I, I started, but you know, I married a great cook, so I can't, I, you know, those dinners are just, and those breakfasts and the lunches are absolutely fantastic. I can't get, I can't, you know, maybe I'm going to surprise her with a dinner or something. I'm going to get into it slowly, but she's such an excellent cook. I can't, <laughs> I can't get around it. <laughs>
I did want to get back. We, we were talking a little bit off mic about the heyday of the record industry. And boy, there really was a record industry that, you know, mm. did a lot to promote records and everything. And it, uh, by the 80s, uh, you were, I mean, you had a, a number of records out in the Gramavision. I mean, you, you, that must have been, I imagine that was the high life. Were you still living in Philadelphia at that still time? still in Philadelphia. And, folks thought that I moved, you know, folks always thought that I lived somewhere else. You played but, on so many New York records. I, yeah, I tend to think mm-hmm. of you somewhat as a New York artist myself, mm, I think. No, I was always in Philadelphia because family is here and I've always been here. And um, Were you touring a, a lot at that time, I imagine? Uh, yeah. Yeah, still touring, still recording, and just, you know, I mean, it hasn't stopped. I, I went through about six passports already, four, five or six passports and with pages filled to the brim. And, and um, you know, I mean, until recently, I had been going to Europe, like, yearly, like, once a month, like, at least once a month, for like, you know, every year, you know. And for me, doing that, it allowed me to... Uh, to appreciate, because one would think, you know, you travel to Europe, you travel to different parts of the world on tour so much, do you get tired of it? And I don't get tired of it. I, I'm, I'm hitting flea markets, you know, I'm hitting museums, I'm going to restaurants, checking out food, I'm shopping, you know, getting some rest, sleeping, reading, you know, re- relaxing on the trains. When we was doing the train tours, you know, I would that, that for me was like an opportunity to just sit down and relax, read a book. You know, check out my music, you know, think about my new ideas or concepts. So even though I've been, every time I go, I check out something new, and that, yeah. that inspires me. It sounds like a romantic life. I mean, it almost sounds like somebody saying, uh, do you get tired being James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> I think that one just has to be humble about it all, you know, because if, if I was another kind of person, you know, maybe I would have a different kind of idea and feeling about it or a different attitude. But I don't let those things get to me because I know that really any of those things can be over any minute, you know. Sure. And so I, I'm always humble and grateful and thankful for the blessing of being able to do that. And in and, and, and every opportunity that I've had to bring along any musician or – it's funny. I was talking to um, one of the guys who's performing with me this Friday at the Art Museum in Philadelphia here. Um, let's, was, let's make sure we, we, okay, we tag that, that gig as but well. This, this person, like all the younger guys that I know who know me, who've been up working with me, you know, whatever. I never really thought of myself as being a mentor to them or whatever. But any opportunity that I've had, you know, to uh, to introduce anybody to, to to what I'm working with in Europe, I try to do that. You know, I, you know, kind of like kind of facilitated the situation for the Roots to go to Europe for the first time. You know, there Ursula Rucker, she went with me for her first time and. And um, it was, it, it, you know, it's a lot of folks that have, you know, Jamal, I'm going to Europe with you. I was like, come on, you know, let's go. <laughs> and so I've been able to have that platform where I was, whereas I've been able to expose them to that. And I like that. But it was funny because one of the guys who came over to the, um, to my, uh, to the red carpet room the other night, he says, wow, Jamal, you're like, you, you know, you got a, you have a legion. <laughs> I was like, like, when I think about it, I was like, wow, that's kind of true in a way. I mean, it's like all these folks, you know, so it's a blessing just to be able to, like, still be here and doing my thing. You're on stage for 30 or 40 years. A a (laughs) legion is bound to to start forming. Legion Takuma. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I'm, I'm humbled about it all, though, really. <laughs> let's get to another uh, another piece uh, of music from uh, Jamal Dean. Legion Takuma. <laughs> <laughs> from the album Jukebox. This is called Zam Zam, which is a wonderful feeling. Mm. Uh, we're here with a bassist uh, extraordinaire, uh, Jamal Dean Takumi. Legion Takuma.
Jamal Dean Takuma alone with the bass there on a cut called a Zam Zam. It was a wonderful feeling from a Gramavision record from 1988, Jukebox. We're here with Jamal Dean. And uh, I, it's funny, I thought this was a question that was going nowhere, but I thought, uh, <laughs> do you ever play the acoustic bass? <laughs> you know, when I first started playing the electric bass, at the same time I was playing the acoustic in school. And it it really wasn't in school. This was an instrument that I kind of picked up on my own. And uh, Jonathan Sternberg, who was the director over at the uh, uh, and composer over at Temple University, used to allow me to come in there and rehearse with the Temple Orchestra. And I, you know, I mean, he just let me come and sit in with my bass and. I would play there with those guys, and I was learning it. But I had to make a decision. I had to make actually a couple decisions early on. The first decision was, was I going to play the electric bass or the upright? Because I, I, I didn't want to split my dedication up. I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, sort of learning it to the best of my ability, each instrument. There's only a couple players. Well, there's actually one player that I love to hear both. That's Stanley Clark. He's the oh, yeah. only one that I can really put my finger on that just rips. <laughs> electric bass and acoustic bass. Both. Either guys are playing acoustic bass, they're concentrating on that, or guys are playing electric bass and they're concentrating on that. He's an exception to the rule, really. I mean, he just rips for real. And he plays the acoustic just like he plays the electric, you know. But I had to make the decision if I was going to do one or the other. So I decided to the, the electric bass, which I'm glad because, you know, for me at the time, being a teenager, electricity, this, that, and the other, it was uh, important that I um, got into that. But I always said to myself at that time, when I became 60 years old, I was going to play the acoustic bass. Uh-huh. So I'm 58 now, but I'm, 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 I've been having that feeling. And so I think last month or two months ago, I was in Switzerland doing a recording with a singer named Erica Stuckey. We were doing a, a Hendrix Project recording. And it was a bass inside of the studio, and I, an upright bass, and I just picked it up, and I started playing with it. I said, okay. And then I had her take a photo of me, and I said, well, that's, that's it. I'm ready. And so a couple of weeks ago, I purchased my um, acoustic bass, uh, a nice acoustic bass, and I'm going to um, premiere that perhaps Friday night at the Art Museum you know, for that concert, Art After, Art After Five. Well, tell, me, tell me about that gig. Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting concert. The Philadelphia Art Museum have been doing this um, program called Art After Five, and they feature musicians locally or maybe not locally. I'm not really sure if there's people that's coming from out of town, but there's been a lot of musicians here in Philadelphia who's played there. I've never played there before. Uh, I thought about it, you know, and um, it was time for me to do it now. I was offered it, and um, I said yes. And um, this concert is going to premier concept that I started some years ago and called DNA Galleria, which was a residency that I held at a club in Philadelphia called Tritone on mm, South Street. Sure, Rick, Rick's place. Yeah. And I used to be there once a month, and I would bring in musicians 
uh, as guests, and I would not let the audience know who they were, and the audience was just crazy. They would come and just check it out every, every you know, that once-a-month period. And it was a beautiful thing. And so, what's, and it was so many musicians, and I have so many recordings from that that I'm going to release at some point. But I wanted to bring about a recording that I did in my studio that featured an improvisational aspect of Philadelphia, where whereas I had musicians come to my studio and listen to what was recorded previously and then contribute their part or contribute their idea. Who, who are the musicians you have coming? That, that, that particular, the recording is so expansive. It's, it's like to name a lot. It's just so huge, you know, in terms of the, the, the people. But some of the people who performed in those recordings, they're going to do the performance with me uh, Friday night. And that's um, June Lopez. He's a, uh, a soundscaper, DJ, who we've worked together before with Wolfgang Pushnik in Europe. Um, Moshe Black, he's also another DJ um, soundscaper that we work together in productions for Japanese artists. Um, Timmy Hudson, who's a drummer, we work together on the Coltrane Configurations Project, as well as uh, the Flavors of Thelonious Monk Project and uh, other things as well. Um, Yoichi Uzeki, who's a pianist, Japanese pianist, who lives in Philadelphia, New York. Um, we worked on For the Love of Ornette and and for Coltrane um, many projects we worked on touring with uh, Ursula Rucker who's a poetess that uh, we worked together on various productions and, and recordings before and she's excellent I'm trying to think if there's any, anyone else sounds like a pretty large group yeah it's just going to be pretty large uh, Robert Roberto Morales who is a friend of mine who, his name is Scar who we, we have not seen each other in 30 years since high school uh, I found him on Facebook, and I invited him out to play with me. He's definitely coming, you know. Domini Superstar, who is a writer, videographer, producer, uh, vocalist, he's going to come and do some vocals with me as well. So it's going to be an unbelievable evening at the Art Museum, you know, Art After Five. And I'm happy wow. to do it, and there's going to be uh, fireworks there <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so check that out. I think that'll be the 6th. The yeah, Friday, um, February, uh, March the 6th. Yeah. I've enjoyed so much talking about uh, the, the history I love so much that, you, that you've taken part of. But, uh, it's still fresh in my mind, so that's yeah, why I'm able to yeah. talk about it. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I, I believe the records that you've made have only gotten uh, better and stronger and, and more fascinating. Uh, what does is, what is the next year hold for you? I would imagine you have uh, something scheduled. Well, God willing, if I'm alive, that's the first thing because you know I, I'm I, I never put forth anything, and you know because God, He's the only one who knows everything. So if I'm spared and by His permission, if I'm still here, I hope to you know still maintain family, you know close family ties, and um, musically, Jam R Productions, the label that we've started and has grown stronger, will continue to you know release recordings, my own recordings, and there are a lot to look on my shelf and grab and, you know, and put out. Uh, it's a project that I'm working on. I can't talk about it just yet, but <laughs> it's in the works. And um, You had a, an Italian, uh, uh, not, not, what's the word I'm looking for? I was thinking sabbatical, but that's not it. You, didn't you oh, the to, residencies. Yeah, the yeah, residency, yeah, yeah. I was awarded the Pew Grant for Arts and Heritage, and um, that was a really big deal. And from that stemmed a whole lot of other things. These residencies started to contact me, asking me would I want to go there to 
be amongst the other artists that were there, be they composers, architects, writers, filmmakers, whatever. And I, I, my first residency was like the top of the heap, you know, uh, McDowell Colony. You know, and I was asked, my studio was actually the same studio that Richard Bernstein was in. <laughs> and it was incredible. There I was able to compose and co- compose actually a project that, that's going to come out soon that I can't talk about just yet. Oh, but, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I was at McDowell and I was there for three months and I was there, you know, completely uh, isolated, able to communicate with the other uh, artists that were there. Because every evening they would have dinner. And we would talk and sit around the table and talk about, you know, what we worked on during that day. And me, I'm always reaching out. So I, I reaching out to the other artists. So I started the, uh, a situation called the Jamal Collabs. So I was hitting up, you know, all the artists that were there, bringing them over to my studio, doing recordings. And the mid, uh, the one after the residency, residency that I did after um, uh, McDowell was Headlands in Sausalito. And there I was able to connect with other writers and you know musicians and and artists of that nature and then my third res- residency that i uh, participated in was uh civitella radiati that was in italy and there i was able to communicate and put together collaborations with other artists there and there possibly be a recording that will be released from that that i can talk about called chivi chill Mm-hmm. And they were completely excited about it because it's something like that had never been done before. You know, you know, you do go to these residencies and you collaborate, you know. But what I wanted to do was to produce a full CD for them that they can use as their fundraiser or whatever. And just a full CD that showcases the talents of all of the various artists that were there. So there was a photographer. So you say, what, what, do, you do, what do you do with a photographer? So she wrote some narrative that I was able to put music together with that she spoke about. There was a science writer there. There was, um, you know, all of these people there that did different things, architect, you know, and we would, you know, I bring them to the studio and we would do the recordings. And so I'm going to release those tapes to TV Tela and allow them to produce it, you know, as a a fundraiser for their and and release the CD as a fundraiser for their organization. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Boy, I hate to say it, this hour is going to run by so fast here. (laughs) <laughs> I would love, love for you to come back sometime and uh, continue this. I, I feel like I'm just getting started. Uh, thanks so much for Jamal Dintakuma to come out. Thank uh, you so much for, and, for having me. And talk with us. We're going to go out with a, a quick one from Jamal Dintakuma's Ornette Coleman uh, tribute album, For the Love of Ornette. Uh, the name of this tune is Takuma Song. Wow.
two, three, four. That's it for the Fun to Know podcast. Again, you'll have a chance to see Jamal Dean live in the Philadelphia area this April 24th at the Outsiders Improvised and Creative Music Festival. Find out details at jamaladeenmusic.com. Find out about past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast on the Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook, always with the numeral 2. Download and stream episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter and email us at fundanopodcast at gmail.com. And here's hoping you come back again for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.